True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Base Podcast with your host, Steve. Hello again everyone, and welcome to the third episode of Season 4 and Episode 43 of the True Crime Fix podcast. If you've enjoyed the show so far, then please make sure that you've subscribed on your chosen podcast directory and all the new episodes will automatically download for you upon release. Also, just in case you are not aware, this is the third episode of a multi-parter, so if you've not heard Part 1 or 2 yet, please press pause here and go back and track down episode 41 and 42 respectively. If you don't, I will warn you, you will get incredibly confused by the story. Before we start today, I thought I would just point out, and probably should have done from the start, that I am posting some reference documents on the Patreon page for all these episodes. The only reason that I'm posting them on Patreon is because everyone who has early access can get them from about 10 minutes after the episode becomes available, and they then become available free to all when the podcast drops on a Friday, so keep your eyes out on social media for the links. They'll be available for all of the episodes, so for example they include the seating charts for whichever incident I'm talking about, as well as any photographs that I find which are relevant. That being said, let's have a brief recap as to where we are. Three men, 30-year-old Mohammed Sadiq Khan, 22-year-old Shizad Tanweer and 18-year-old Hasib Hussain have travelled down from Leeds in Yorkshire to Luton in Bedfordshire. There they have picked up a fourth man, Jermaine Lindsay. They travelled on the Thameslink service from Luton into King's Cross St Pancras where they said their goodbyes and went their separate ways. The first part focused solely on the incident which took place between Liverpool Street and Allgate. The second part focused on the explosions at Edgware Road and Russell Square. We have also focused on the 39 victims so far. Today, we'll be focusing on the final attack and the initial response from the heads of state. Just a reminder, the majority of this is based on the testimony of those that were there, so therefore some of the descriptions are extremely graphic. Without further ado, this is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve, and this episode is dedicated to the memory of all of those who lost their lives during the events that unfolded on the 7th of July, 2005. George Saradakis had been a bus driver for Stagecoach for approximately five years. 
Stagecoach had the contract to provide the drivers to all of the bus routes within London and George was responsible for knowing the route of 16 different London buses. The way that the routes and drivers' hours are usually worked out is that a circular route is planned, so from point A to point B and then back again, and that is classed as a circular route. A bus driver would do two circuits from the start of their shift and then have a lunch break and then complete a third to end their day. On the morning of the 7th of July, George got to work on time for his shift which began at 5.30am and was allocated the number 30 bus route. This double-decker bus route runs from London's iconic Marble Arch down to Baker Street along the Euston Road up to King's Cross then heads up to Angel before going along Islington High Street to Highbury Corner down the Balls Pond Road to Dalston down Graham Road to Mare Street past the iconic Hackney Empire Theatre before terminating at Hackney Wick not far from where the Olympic Park is situated. The journey is scheduled to take an hour and five minutes each way but with London traffic it obviously can take significantly longer. Before setting off George carried out the mandatory checks making sure nothing suspicious was on his vehicle, a check which needed to be carried out before each journey commenced. He set off from Hackney Wick towards Marble Arch for the first route, and as it was early in the morning, he arrived at Marble Arch at around 6.30am. After a few minutes, he turned round and completed the return trip, getting back to Hackney at about 7.30am. After staying on the bus stand for about 10 minutes to regulate the service, he started the second of his circular routes, arriving at Marble Arch at around 8.40am. In a coincidental twist of fate, the return journey to Hackney Wick began at 8.50am. Soon after starting this trip, a call came in over the two-way radio in his cab saying that there was a disruption to the London Underground, but nothing more specific than that, and instructed all of the drivers to take care and assist the public as much as they could as they were emerging from the tube stations. As George turned right onto Euston Road, going towards Baker Street Station, from afar he could already see a large number of people at the next bus stop. As he opened the doors, his empty bus was almost filled to capacity. People appeared concerned and most unfamiliar with the bus network, asking him for directions. Between Baker Street and Euston Station, despite again a large number of passengers waiting at each stop, he was unable to let any additional passengers onto the bus due to the capacity of his vehicle. At this point, there was still no further news over the two-way radio, and as George was approaching Euston Station, he could see thousands of people on the pavement and even in the road, and could hear the sirens of emergency services vehicles. 
By the time George got to the usual bus stop, bus stop D, an ambulance was blocking it. So many people were again trying to board the bus. As people were trying to get off the bus, and so many people were trying to get on, George had to open both the front and middle doors. The issue was that the people who disembarked the bus discovered that they could not go anywhere else, so therefore reboarded it, realising that getting somewhere slower was better than not getting there at all. As well as the people getting back on the bus, people who had been waiting had also boarded, meaning that the bus was now dangerously overcrowded. George became concerned as people were starting to stand wherever they could, including right next to the driver's cab, obstructing the view of his offside mirrors. Slight side note, I didn't realise I hadn't explained this before, but near side is the right or the side of the driver, and offside is the left because of the way that we drive. He refused to leave the station until people left the bus so he could see. Some people obliged and he was able to continue on his way. The usual route for the 30 bus would have then taken him along the Euston Road past King's Cross. When George got to the traffic lights where he would normally turn left to rejoin the Euston Road, there was a police cordon closing the road. So as he had still not received any instructions from the controller, he crossed the Euston Road and went down Upper Woburn Place towards Tavistock Square. His intention was to find the first bus stop to announce to the passengers that the police had diverted him and he needed to call his base to ask for instructions. This would more than likely cause a delay to their journey. When he stopped, he also asked anybody whose destination was close by to make their way there by foot as he could not guarantee where the diversion would take them. Quite a few passengers got off the bus at that point, some quoted afterwards as many as 40. Unfamiliar with where he was, he saw two traffic wardens ahead of him, so he closed the doors and started moving the bus in their direction, so he could find out his location and radio back to base. At the inquest he said, So I again closed the doors and pulled away very slowly, at a crawling speed, and when I was opposite the traffic wardens, I stopped properly, opened my window, and called to them, and they paid attention to me. I said to them, what is the name of this place? But because they were a bit too far, I couldn't hear, there was a lot of traffic noise. So I said, can you come nearer? They said to me, Tavistock Square. So I thanked them, and then, as I tried to press my radio to call my garage, George recalled his reaction. I quote, Well, I thought, what did I hear? I saw that the window screen was blown away and debris was falling all over me. I was stunned and I remember I touched my head 
and I could feel only dust. So, shocked as I was, I got out of the bus through the passenger doors at the front. Immediately after I checked that I was okay, I thought, what happened to my passengers? I looked around, and on the wall opposite, I've seen a leg stuck on the wall. A leg, or an arm, but I think it was a leg, a whole leg. I was so shocked, but I kept going and went towards the back of the bus to see what had happened, and everywhere I looked, there were bodies, torsos, two heads, two piles of human flesh. The bomb had exploded at about 9.47am. The building that the explosion had happened opposite was the British Medical Association headquarters at Tavistock House. The British Medical Association, or the BMA, is the professional association and registered trade union for doctors in the United Kingdom. The building, unfortunately, was only offices where general practitioners and medical staff met and they were lacking the vital equipment required to deal with the catastrophic injuries suffered. For those there on that day, they were just doctors meeting inside an upstairs room of their profession's headquarters until they felt the hundred-year-old building shake and heard the unmistakable blast of a bomb. One doctor later said they dropped everything, ran down the stairs and out onto the square. What greeted them was an eerie stillness. Sirens could be heard in the background. He described it like the scene from a movie where it was all slow motion to the extent that he could identify pigeons as they were cooing. There were casualties and fatalities everywhere. Their first priority was to cover the dead, firstly to preserve their dignity, but also so not to traumatise the injured any more than they already were. Then, it was to help the seriously injured passengers off the bus, because of the fear of another secondary device being detonated. As mentioned earlier, there was a lack of medical equipment, so the first 10 to 15 minutes after the explosion, the building was raided for any useful medical supplies. The cafe's tables became makeshift stretchers, the canteen's tablecloths were used as bandages to stop the bleeding. The local general practitioners, who were normally accustomed to talking to their patients in consulting rooms, tended to bleeding men and women laying on the street, holding their hands, urging them to hang on. The hospital surgeons, used to working in spotless operating theatres and sterilised calm environments, found themselves kneeling amid dust, glass and debris, the like of which only seen in a war zone. The ultimate memory of that morning for Dr Andrew Dearden, who was a local GP from Cardiff, was the slow realisation that this was not a normal trauma event. He had heard the whoosh of the bomb as he entered the building, so turned around expecting to see a collision. 
but as he walked towards the bus, he noticed a wide circle of debris, then a purse laying in the street, and closer in, a severed limb. The closer I got, the more I saw, he told the BBC News in an interview on the 10th anniversary. Although my brain had worked out what had happened, I was confronted with evidence of real human cost. The 18 doctors who were in the building at the time began to congregate and organise themselves, prioritising the people that they could help and comforting the ones that they could not. Dr Peter Holden, who was a GP from Derbyshire, had been trained in immediate emergency care, so he took command of his fellow doctors and used his training to set up a treatment centre within the secure courtyard of the BMA building. In the same report, he told the BBC, My job was to do the most, secure the scene and prevent chaos. Despite his determination, they were armed with only a pair of surgical gloves, a face mask and four first aid kits. He recalled it was about giving top-notch, simple first aid for the first 30 minutes or so until the drips and oxygen arrived on ambulances coming to take the injured away. They realised that they had to focus on what resources they had and use them on people who needed them the most and in the right order. As was described in the last episode, the chaos had caused central London to be without mobile reception that morning, so Dr Holden and his team improvised, sending messages via the ambulances returning to the London hospitals requesting for medical supplies. Both doctors stated that there was no doubt that lives were saved that day because they treated people quickly. Looking back, Dr Dearden said, In a day of awfulness, we were lucky to be able to do some good. There were so many other people who played an important role too in supporting the doctor's efforts. BMA staff, local hotels, paramedics and passers-by. Louise Barry's day started like any other. She lived in Westbourne Park in West London and worked in Islington. She was a native Australian and her commute involved getting the Hammersmith and Cityline train from Westbourne Park to King's Cross and then changing trains to complete her journey. Incidentally, Her journey had taken her through Edgware Road in the other direction at 8.50. She recalled, There was a really loud bang and the lights in the tube flickered on and off. Inside the tube the doors opened and closed and then stayed open for a bit. Everybody was wondering what had happened. There was an announcement that everybody had to evacuate the entire station. She had come out of Edgware Road Station and started making her way down Marylebone Road to Baker Street. When she got there, again they were evacuating the entire underground. 
not really knowing where she was going by bus, she got on a single decker which took her to Euston Station. From there, she jumped on the overcrowded number 30 bus and managed to get a seat at the back on the bottom deck in the far left corner. As she left Euston Station, she received a phone call from her brother in Australia and she mentioned that she thought she had just experienced a bomb going off on the underground. At which point, another passenger in front of her called Sam reassured her that it had not been a bomb according to his boss at work and it had been a power surge. At this point, it had just started raining and when the driver informed them that the route had changed and anyone who could get to their destination locally would probably be best to walk, Louise stayed on as she discovered that she had gone out without her umbrella and she was not in any real rush to get to work. As the bus started to move again, she received a text. She pulled her phone out of her pocket and it was from her boyfriend. It said, Actually, you were right. They were bombs. Lucky you weren't involved. As she put her phone back in her pocket, the bomb went off above her. I quote Louise from the inquest. And I remember being totally conscious the whole time. And when I say bang, I don't mean a loud bang like I did at Edgware Road. Actually, it was almost the total opposite. Like all the sound had shut down, as if I was deeply, deeply, deeply underwater, so my hearing was all muffled. It was all like distorted sounds, but of a very low tone. Flashes of white light and flashes of green, and my head felt like it was being twisted off. As all this was going on, I was consciously thinking, I'm having an epileptic fit. Possibly I've gone into some sort of psychosis. Then I heard these voices. Everything's fine. Tell her everything's fine. It's going to be okay. Everything's fine. I thought they were just the people on the bus that I'd been talking to, so I thought they were looking at me having a seizure. I was trapped. I was in the brace position, my head was between my knees. That's when I could feel the person in front of me's body. I could feel bodies beside me. I could actually feel human limbs. But even though I didn't look up, I felt like there was something holding me down. It was kind of dark, and then it started. Boiling water was starting to drip on my arm and that brought me back to reality. I got out myself. I later found out that the boiling water was from the radiator. I thought it was petrol, and in my mind I imagined, you know, a bad Hollywood A-list movie of a match going off, so I thought, I've got to get out of here. But I couldn't move, I just couldn't move. I was surrounded by bodies, so I crawled through them. As I was crawling, though, I lost my shoes and my bag ripped off. Then I staggered up, and suddenly, it was gone. It was daylight. 
I was just standing at the back of the bus. I was looking around and I couldn't scream. I wanted to scream but no noise came out. I could see a gentleman just walking in circles on the footpath. I was trying to scream for help and I didn't know how I was going to get down. Then some guy got out of his car and he came up to help me. He took my hand and I just walked down the back of this panel and then I was on the ground. Hussein had boarded the bus at Euston and found a seat on the upper deck, two rows from the back. When the bomb exploded, the floor at the rear of the top deck caved in onto those below. The extent of the damage caused to the victims' bodies resulted in a lengthy delay in announcing the death toll from the bombing, while the police determined how many bodies were present and whether the bomber was one of them. The location of the bomb inside the bus meant that the front of the vehicle remained mostly intact. Most of the passengers at the front of the top deck survived, as did those near the front of the lower deck, including the driver, but those at the rear of the bus suffered more serious injuries, with several individuals being blown from the bus. There were 13 people who were not so lucky. The person who was sitting next to Hussein, and thus bore the full force of the explosion, was Neetu Jane. She was born on the 23rd of May 1967, in New Delhi, India. Neetu lived in the Indian capital for just one year, before her father was offered work as an engineer in England, and the family moved to London. They first lived in Southall, later moving to Kingsbury before settling in Hendon in 1975. Neetu's family were Hindu, and she attended Hendon Senior School, where she showed her aptitude for study and science. In 1988, she graduated from King's College London with a biochemistry degree, having been recognised for the best academic results in her year. She continued her studies with a Masters in IT at the University College of London, taking on part-time work and summer jobs at the Body Shop, Harrods, and as a research assistant at the Kennedy Institute for Rheumatology. Afterwards, she joined TCAM and her work took her around the world, from India to Venezuela to Mexico to Turkey and the United States. Tiring of travelling, she joined Smart Logic in 1994. In May 2005, she began a new job with TXT4 in Hoxton Square, building computer software. Neetu was just about to get engaged to boyfriend Goz Ali, and they were ready to start a family. Her normal commute to her old street offices was disrupted when the tube network was evacuated, so she boarded the number 30 bus. She had called her sister and boyfriend to relay the chaotic exodus from the Euston station. Her boyfriend started a desperate search for her after the explosion, 
checking all of the hospitals before her death from the initial explosion was confirmed. Miriam Hyman was sitting in front of a sane when the bomb detonated. She was born on the 30th of November 1972 at the University College Hospital in London. Miriam grew up in the North London neighbourhood of Hampstead Garden and she was the daughter of John and Mavis Hyman. She went to school at the Brooklands Junior School and then Copthall School in nearby Mill Hill. At the University College London, she studied French and the history of art, graduating in 1994. She went on to work for Quarto Publishing, BBC Books and finally as a freelancer. She planned to start a handmade greeting cards company called Mimento, a play on her nickname Mim. On the morning of the 7th of July, she was on her way to work in Canary Wharf when she was evacuated from the tube network. She had spoken to her father to reassure him that she was safe after being evacuated from King's Cross shortly before boarding the number 30 bus at Euston. Miriam was blown from the top deck of the bus onto the near side pavement by the force of the explosion and she suffered very severe injuries. She was tended to and comforted by members of the public who tried to administer first aid but died at around 10am, 13 minutes after the explosion. Miriam Hyman had been born, graduated and died all within one square mile of London. Jamie Gordon was sitting in front of Neetu Jane, diagonally from the explosion. He was born on the 19th of December 1974 in Dulwich, London, to a Zimbabwean mother and Scottish father, Payrose Bond and Glaswegian, David Gordon. Jamie moved to the Zimbabwean capital, Harare, with his mother and sister when he was four. His father visited several times as Jamie threw himself into school and new hobbies such as scouting, horse riding and BMX. More than a decade later, he returned to Britain to finish his education at Eaglesfield Secondary School in Shooters Hill, South London. Now he was back in England again, he joined the Scouts and formed a band with friends, playing guitar and singing at several gigs. David Gordon stated he went from the exuberant child who seemed to fear nothing to the long-haired rock star teenager, all hair, nail varnish, black mascara and guitars, to the mature but still quirky young man. In the words of his father, Jamie wanted to be a rock star but fell into financial administration. He had met and was engaged to Yvonne Nash and the couple lived in Enfield, North London. He would catch the overground train to Liverpool Street and then walk the final three quarters of a mile to his place of work. But on the evening of the 6th of July, Jamie had stayed at a friend's house after leaving a party. 
his route to work that next morning led him to take the number 30 bus that exploded at Tavistock Square. Jamie Gordon was blown from the bus and killed by the explosion. His body was subsequently found in the sub-basement area next to the British Medical Association building. Marie Hartley was also sitting on the top deck. She had travelled down from Oswald Twizzle in Lancashire with a colleague, Camille Scott, to try and recruit new artists at an art exhibition called New Designers in Islington. She was born on the 18th of June 1971 in Blackburn in Lancashire. She attended St Nicholas Church of England School in Accrington and later the nearby Moorhead County High School. While there, one teacher spotted her exceptional talent for art and she was put forward for a junior position at a design studio, which she won. In 1987, she joined Hambledon Studios in Burnley as an artist progressing to graphics manager, then studio manager. She progressed to designing and producing greeting cards, ones that eventually were used by Hallmark. Besides art, Maria enjoyed music, reading and attending St Mary's Roman Catholic Church in her hometown. She had met her husband David, whom she had married in 1996, and they went on to have two sons. Maria Hartley was blown onto the road by the force of the explosion and suffered very severe injuries. She was tended to and comforted by doctors from the British Medical Association and by police officers. She was carried into the courtyard of the BMA building but died shortly afterwards at about five past ten. Her friend Camille recalled what happened after the blast. I was being treated by a few people and I asked the people if they knew where Marie was. I remember just looking over and in the corner there were bodies. I could see Marie. I knew it was Marie. Then someone came along and put a sheet over her. But I knew it was Marie because I could see her hair and the bracelet on her arm. Gladys Wundoa was sitting in the back row of the top deck in the seat furthest to the left with the direction of travel. She was born on the 14th of March 1955 in Ghana, West Africa. Gladys was one of six born into a cocoa farming family. Known affectionately as Amma, she attended the local primary and middle schools, but her parents could not afford to send her to secondary school. Instead, she took on jobs carrying cement blocks on building sites and mining a salt lake to support her family. In time, she moved to the Ghanaian capital of Accra, where she worked for a Lebanese family as a maid, and when the family moved to London, she went with them. After a year in the UK, the family left, but Gladys stayed, finding work as a cleaner at the University College London and enrolling in a hairdressing course. In 1994, 
she started volunteering at a charity which helped African immigrants to settle in London. And in April 2005, she began a course in housing management. It was shortly after moving to the UK that a friend introduced her to Emmanuel Wundoa. Two years later, they had a daughter, Azuma, and married in 1991. A son, Zakari, followed a year later. Gladys left her home in Shadwell Heath, Essex at 4am to begin her journey to the University College London to start her shift. Some five hours later, she left UCL for an appointment in Hackney and boarded the number 30 bus. Gladys was blown onto the road behind by the force of the explosion and suffered very severe injuries. She was tended to and comforted by a doctor from the British Medical Association, members of the public and police officers. She was carried into the courtyard of the BMA building, where she received further medical treatment. Unfortunately, she died at about 10.40am. Giles Hart was sitting to the right, across the aisleway from Hussein. He was born on the 20th of November 1949, in Khartoum, in Sudan, despite both his parents being English. Giles grew up in a loving, intellectual and musical home. With his older sister Erica, the family would form a violin quartet, igniting his love of classical music. At five, Giles moved to the United Kingdom with his family, attending Woodhouse Grammar in North London, before studying maths at Royal Holloway University of London. In 1971, he entered the civil service, then from 1989, worked for British Telecom. But it was outside of work that his main interests lay. Throughout the 1980s, Giles was a prominent supporter of solidarity, especially when Poland was under martial law. Martial law in Poland refers to the period between the 13th of December 1981 and the 22nd of July 1983 when the authoritarian communist government of the Polish People's Republic drastically restricted normal life by introducing martial law in an attempt to throttle political opposition, in particular the Solidarity Movement. Thousands of opposition activists were imprisoned without charge and as many as 91 were killed. For 37 years he served as the secretary and chairman of the Polish Solidarity Campaign, the main group in Britain supporting the Solidarity Movement. He also founded the Polish Refugee Rights Group, which helped Poles fleeing martial law in Poland settle in Britain. And he remained highly active in the Solidarity Movement until its final days before communism gave way to democratic rule in Poland in 1989. Giles was on his way to work in Islington on the morning of the 7th of July 2005. 
he was blown from the bus and killed by the explosion. His body was subsequently found in the road behind the bus. He left behind his Polish wife, Danuta, his daughter, Marila, then 21, and his son, Martin, then 17. Giles was posthumously granted the Knight's Cross of the Order of Merit for the Republic of Poland for his services to democracy. This was in recognition of his tireless work with solidarity, which helped end the communist movement in Poland. Sahara Islam was sitting next to Giles on the top deck. She was born on the 11th of January 1985 in Whitechapel, London. She left Barking Abbey Comprehensive School with two A-levels but decided to go straight into work rather than enter higher education. She was an EastEnder, a Londoner and British but above all a true Muslim and proud to be so, said a statement from her family released shortly after her death. She worked as a cashier for the cooperative bank in Islington. Not a lot is known about her unfortunately and even her passing caused some mystery. Initially it was thought by her family that she may have died in the circle line bomb detonated near Allgate Station. Sahara Islam was blown onto the road to the offside of the bus by the force of the explosion and she suffered very severe injuries. She was tended to and comforted by doctors from the British Medical Association but died at about 9.55am. Shyanuja Paratha Sangari was the woman who was described earlier in the statement of Louise Berry who was sitting opposite her She was born on the 30th of August 1974 in Colombo, Sri Lanka. Shanuja was brought to the United Kingdom in 1975 at the age of one when her father, Sangari, was given the chance to study in Britain. She attended primary school in Queen's Park, West London and later John Kelly High School in North London showing a love of sport and talent for singing. She followed her mother's religion, Christianity, rather than her father's Hinduism, and worshipped at the Fernhead Road Methodist Church in West London. After graduating from London's South Bank University in business and administration, Shainuja joined the Royal Mail in 1997 and was working at the Old Street office as an assistant purchasing officer. She was on her way to work on that fateful morning. As you heard earlier, she was killed in the initial explosion, which happened directly above her. The other person referred to in Louise's testimony was Slam Lai. He was born on the 8th of May 1977 in Vietnam. When he was two, His family fled Vietnam by boat to Malaysia. Just over a year later, they were living in Melbourne, Australia as refugees. At the age of five, 
Sam lost his mother to breast cancer and was raised by his father and older sister. He attended St John's Primary School and later turned down a place at Melbourne High School to study at Collingwood College where his friends were going. His teachers in him recognised a quick-witted, fast learner who was a people person. By 15, he was doing part-time work at McDonald's and supermarkets to support his family. He went on to study at La Trobe University and Monash University to read business and finance IT. He spoke Mandarin and did Chinese studies. It was in his first year at university that his relationship with Mandy Ha, whom he had known since primary school, began and the couple soon moved in together. In 2003, they moved to London for a two-year working holiday, quickly establishing themselves in jobs and making friends. As a result of the explosion, Sam Lai suffered severe injuries and became trapped in the wreckage of the bus. He was tended to and comforted by members of the public, members of the emergency services and doctors from the British Medical Association. At about 10.20am, Sam Lai was cut out of the wreckage and removed from the bus by officers of the London Fire Brigade and the Metropolitan Police Service. He was taken first into the courtyard of the BMA building and then into the building itself. He was subsequently taken by ambulance to the University College Hospital, arriving at about 11am. Later that day, Sam Lai was transferred to the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery, where he was treated until he died on the 14th of July, 2005. After his death, a memorial service in his hometown of Melbourne reflected the mix of cultures which shaped Sam. They combined Buddhist and civil ceremonies and were conducted in English, Vietnamese and Cantonese. William Wise was running a little late for work on the morning of the 7th of July 2005 after forgetting to pick up his glasses as he left his house. He therefore returned to his home in Notting Hill, where he picked them up before kissing his wife Christine goodbye. It was to be their final kiss. William made his way into the city from Notting Hill Gate Station, the same journey that he had made over the past ten years. At 9.20am, he called his wife to say that he had overheard Transport for London workers saying that there had been an explosion and she was not to worry and he would see her later. He also called a colleague to let him know that he would be late for work as he would be taking the bus instead of taking the tube. William never made it to work and was killed in the blast. Philip Russell was sitting directly opposite William. He was born on the 11th of July 1976 in Pembury, Kent. Philip had showed an interest in music, playing the saxophone in an orchestra, but he also enjoyed travelling following an exchange to France 
when he was at school. By the sixth form, he had gone from being a quiet, studious boy to a popular, outgoing young man, known amongst friends as the life and soul of the party. He went on to graduate at Kingston University with a 2-1 in business studies. Before growing up and settling down into a job in finance in the city, Philip had travelled on his own to South Africa, Australia and New Zealand. At the time of his death, Philip had been rising quickly through the ranks at JP Morgan Asset Management and was set to go to New York and Toronto with the company in September. Philip was an avid Charlton Athletic fan and he used to attend home games with his father. He was also described as a doting uncle to his sister's children. Philip was killed in the explosion. His parents were eventually able to identify his body four days later, on what would have been his 29th birthday. Anthony Fataya Williams was standing in the aisleway of the lower deck of the bus towards the back as the bomb exploded. He was born on the 29th of January 1979 in Whitechapel to a Catholic mother and Muslim father. Anthony divided his childhood between Britain, France and Nigeria, having attended schools in Sevenoaks, Kent, Paris and Lagos. He became fluent in French and went on to study for a degree in politics and economics at Bradford University. Born of Nigerian parentage, his upbringing was far from poor, with his mother being a senior oil executive and his father being one of Nigeria's leading medical practitioners. In 2002, he followed in his mother's footsteps, getting a job in the oil industry and joining Amec. After two years, he became a regional executive, developing new business in Africa. His career ambitions were matched by a strong work ethic, and he planned to start a part-time master's degree in oil and gas at Dundee University. The day before his death, he earned plaudits from experts in his industry for a presentation given at an oil seminar in London. On the morning of the 7th of July, he was on his way into the city to report back to his bosses on his success when he was caught up in the blast and was believed to have died instantly. It wasn't until five days after the attacks that his family heard of his fate. Weeks later, Anthony's briefcase and gold chain which was a gift from his mother, were returned to the family. Annette Rosenberg was standing behind Anthony as the blast happened. She was born on the 22nd of July 1965 in the coastal town of Hydra in Israel. She studied at high school in Jerusalem and completed national service with the Israeli army before training in modern dance. Her passion was piano and ballet, and it was her plan to study dance which drew her to London in 1990. 
the arts and culture in London was a constant source of enjoyment to her, especially dance, opera and theatre. Between 1994 and 1995, Annette took a course in social and community work at Hackney Community College. But it was a job offering wine samples to customers at Waitrose that brought her in contact with John Fowding, a retired journalist from the Financial Times, who shared many of her interests and would later become her boyfriend. She joined Action for Children, the children's charity in 2001, as an administrator, helping former residents of children's homes to access records or find relatives. On the morning of the blasts, she left John's flat in Marylebone to go to work. The two had spent the previous evening watching a performance of Twelfth Night together in Regent's Park. During her journey, she was evacuated from the London Underground at Euston and boarded the bus. Annette was killed in the explosion. John was on the phone to her as the bomb went off, hearing distant screams before the line went dead. He said afterwards, though, that he was glad that he was talking to her when it happened. John said the irony of all these terrible things is the fact that she was afraid of visiting Israel because she was scared of suicide bombings on buses. Once all of the initial investigations had been completed at the scene, the bombed bus was covered with tarpaulin and removed by low loader for forensic examination at a secure Ministry of Defence site. You have now heard all of the stories of the 52 people who lost their lives on that day. I know that it's been hard going, but I made no secrets about the way that I wanted them to be the focus of this story. But now I'm just going to take a quick pause and tell you about an amazing new podcast that I've started listening to. And before anybody thinks it, she really hasn't paid me to be this nice about her. If you like this show, then hunt down Chantel's Lady Justice podcast. Lady Justice is a one-woman show with bite-sized cases and it is now one of the shows that I cannot complete my week without listening to. But rather than me tell you about it, here's Chantel to tell you more. Hello my lovelies, my name is Chantel and I'm the host over at Lady Justice True Crime. Lady Justice is a weekly podcast that covers fascinating cases both past and present from around the UK and Ireland. Some of them are strange, many are unbelievable, all of them are completely unique and are someone's story. So please come join me on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, there are so many people like me and Chantal who produce shows for you on a regular basis for the true love of doing it. We don't have the budgets of a big backer and anything spent on the show often isn't covered by the small amount of funds we receive on a monthly basis, therefore coming out of our own pockets to entertain our dear friends listening. And we do it because we want to. So therefore, please, if you do want to tweet any of your favourite shows, 
For example, Adam at UK True Crime, Paul at True Crime Enthusiast, Mike at Murder Mar, Jenny at It's Murder Up North, or many more that I'll be promoting over the coming episodes, please use the hashtag SupportIndieTrueCrime. That's hashtag SupportIndieTrueCrime. All we are trying to do is get more people to listen to our work. So what happened in the immediate aftermath? By 9.30am, the Cabinet Office briefing rooms, or COBRA as they are known, had been activated in response to the explosions. These rooms are used for committees which coordinate the actions of government bodies in response to national or regional crises, or during overseas events with major implications on the UK. With the Prime Minister Tony Blair being at Glen Eagles for the G8 summit, the meeting was chaired by the Home Secretary Charles Clark and commenced around 10am. This is the one thing that's rarely discussed when the events of the day are spoken about. The 31st G8 summit was held on the 6th to the 8th of July 2005 at the Glen Eagles Hotel in Scotland and was being hosted by the Prime Minister Tony Blair. The G8, or the Group of Eight as it was called at the time, is a multinational forum with senior ministers from Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, Russia, the United Kingdom, the United States and the European Union all in attendance. Attendees at this conference included Paul Martin from Canada, Jacques Chirac from France, Silvio Berlusconi from Italy, Junichiro Koizama from Japan, Vladimir Putin from Russia and George W. Bush from the USA. Also attending the conference were the leaders of Brazil, China, Ethiopia, India, Mexico, South Africa, as well as Kofi Annan, the Secretary General of the United Nations. Traditionally, the host country of the G8 summit sets the agenda for negotiations which take place prior to the summit, primarily amongst multinational civil servants, leading to a joint declaration which all countries can agree to ceremonially sign at the summit. As host, the UK stated its intent to focus this G8 meeting on the issues of global climate change and the lack of economic development in the poorer areas of Africa. The British government set the priorities of supporting Africa's economic development by agreeing to write off debts of the poorest countries. They also had agreed to significantly increase aid to the continent. These points were in addition to discussing and moving forward the initiatives and research which had been started to combat global warming. As a result of this, the Metropolitan Police Force was already heavily understaffed as 1,500 Central London officers were in Scotland policing the G8 summit. Therefore, a number of officers were being drafted in from the suburbs such as Croydon and Uxbridge when the first emergency call was received. 
Charles Clark, in an interview in 2010, remembered the events to journalist Lee Jarvis. We were in a meeting in the cabinet as it happened. Tony Blair was at the G8 in Scotland, so Deputy Prime Minister John Prescott was chairing the cabinet meeting, during which there were a couple of notes that came in. It wasn't clear at the beginning what had actually happened. Had there been some kind of tube crash, people didn't know. It then became fairly clear what had happened in general terms. There had been some kind of explosion on the tube and news of a bus had been coming in at about the same time. So I asked John Prescott to stop the cabinet and we immediately went to the Cobra room with a number of the cabinet ministers. We were briefed and got what was the latest information. However, at the time there was a lot of conflicting information. Firstly, we didn't know how many incidents there had been. The police had in fact correctly identified that there was four, but other people thought there might be as many as eight because of the explosions and the smoke coming out of different areas and so on. But the first thing we had to do, clearly, was to get the facts as fast as possible. Andy Heyman, who was the commander from the Metropolitan Police, did a good job in that respect, and then we had to decide what to do. The Cobra Incident Room has a lot of televisions on the walls, and we were trying to get inputs from the emergency services and so on, so that we could provide a plan of action. So I decided to have that meeting last quite a short time, 45 minutes or something like that, because you don't want people sitting in meetings rather than actually understanding what's happening. I went to a separate room to communicate with Tony Blair, who was up in Glen Eagles, and reported the information that we had. I said to him, if he wanted to stay in Glen Eagles, he should as we could handle it from where we were. But he decided he would come back to London. I think it was the right decision, but I wanted him to feel that it wasn't necessary for him to return, because we were dealing with it. We went back to Cobra together for a further update on where we were. The biggest problem at the time was to know whether there was going to be a second attack immediately. The Madrid attack had two incidents, and so the practical question was whether or not we should close down the transport network in London. Slight side note, on the 11th of March 2004, four bombs had simultaneously been detonated three days before the Spanish general elections, an attack which had killed 193 and injured 2050 on the Madrid train network. Mr. Clark's interview continued. I met with Alistair Darling, who was the transport secretary in the cabinet offices, and we decided not to close it down eventually. We thought that the problems of closing it down, even if there was to be another attack, would be immense. So we decided, and I think it was the right decision to keep it going. I then had to report to the public and parliament about what was happening, so we set up a photo call outside number 10 and I went out to explain what was happening to the media.
Obviously, our desire was to give the most authoritative and accurate statement to the people of what was happening. And then there was an emergency statement to Parliament. At midday, the Prime Minister Tony Blair gave the first public statement from the G8 summit. This is where the first public declaration of this being a terrorist attack was mentioned. Mr Blair said in a statement prepared by the G8 leaders and the five guest countries that they condemned the barbaric attacks and that all of the countries had suffered at the hands of terrorism, but that would not stop the work that was being done at this summit. Shortly after this, the Home Secretary, Mr Clark, confirmed the latest, that there had been indeed four explosions, and no one had yet claimed responsibility for the attacks. Within hours of the attacks, there were groups on an internet forum which were claiming responsibility. The secret organisation group of Al-Qaeda in Europe had claimed responsibility for the attacks, including warnings to other governments with troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. This information had been obtained by the security services through an unconfirmed source that was not able to be verified. Throughout the day, other dignitaries such as the Mayor of London, Ken Livingstone, Queen Elizabeth II and the UN Security Council condemned the attacks on London. So at this point, what was going on with the police's investigation? Or, more to the point, how much did the police actually know? As you can probably appreciate, due to the sheer scale of the attacks, the inquests into what actually happened, what information was already known, and subsequent investigations to piece together the day, actually took a number of years to complete. As the attacks were conducted by individuals who had ultimately killed themselves in the attacks, there was no one whom could be brought to justice for the murders themselves. A review of the intelligence into the London attacks was conducted and presented to Parliament in May 2009 under the chairmanship of the Intelligence and Security Committee. During the time that the report was being drafted, there was a number of leaders. Firstly, the Right Honourable Paul Murphy, who was the Member of Parliament for Torfane in Wales between 2005 and 2008. Then, the Right Honourable Margaret Beckett, who was the MP for Derby South between January and October 2008. And finally, the Right Honourable Kim Howes, who was the Member of Parliament for Pontypridd from October 2008 until the change of government in 2010. Just to clarify, these are the dates that they held the post for and not the dates that they were a Member of Parliament. The Intelligence and Security Committee is an independent parliamentary body set up under the Intelligence Services Act 1994, whose role was to examine the work of the intelligence and security agencies. The MI5, who were officially known as the Security Service, MI6, who were officially known as the Secret Intelligence Service, and the Government Communications Headquarters, or GCHQ. 
The committee consisted of eight MPs and one member of the House of Lords, drawn from the Labour Party, the Conservative Party and the Liberal Democrat Party. They were given access to a wide range of the agency's secret material. One of the report's findings was that the MI5 had come across two of the 7-7 bombers on the edge of another investigation. The report stated a review of related surveillance data showed that Sadiq Khan and Shazad Tanweer had been among a group of men who had held meetings with others under security service investigation in 2004. These others were known as the Crevice Group. Still to come, we look at the subsequent report and how the movements of that fateful day were ultimately learnt about. Who were the men that committed such a heinous attack and what motivated them? We'll be hearing about another plot which was foiled by the security services. We'll be looking into the death of Jean-Charles de Menezes. We'll be looking at what happened with the first responders as well as some positives that came out in the aftermath. So as we've come to the end of part three, and I hope that you are still learning things about the tragic events of that day that you were not aware of. I've received some amazing feedback from you all so far on this case, so I thank you from the bottom of my heart. I would also like to add that if you were there on that day and have anything that you would like to add, I foresee this case being two more parts and would love to have some personal testimonies for the last episode, so please hit the contact us link in the show notes. Please remember, if you've enjoyed the show or want to know more, then please follow us on Twitter at TrueCrimeFixPod. That's at TrueCrimeFixPod on Twitter. The podcast also has a Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast, but there's also a fan page true crime fix discussion also a reminder that the podcast is on patreon so if you can afford to support the show please visit www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast i also have an instagram account so search true crime fix or click the link in the show notes also if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show please contact me at true crime fix podcast at gmail.com that's true crime fix podcast at gmail.com until next time stay safe look after each other and live life to the fullest because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner take care everyone <laughs>